From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking back through technology history to better understand the trends that we see today. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I am joined by my long-lost co-host, Quinn Nelson. That's right. We're back. We did it. We're back. Season, season two. two. Woo-hoo-hoo. We have a nicer set. The budget's a little bit bigger. Uh, I don't know that either of those things are true. But I didn't buy anything for this episode. <laughs> so the budget's smaller so far. Actually, yeah, that's good. That's, that's good. Neither did I. The first time in a long time have I not purchased something as a result of doing an episode on the show. And I don't think I will. No, not this time. But I give it just a few episodes and one of us will be on eBay <laughs> buying something. Mm, that's how it goes. Especially you. Although not with any Apple products because you've already got all of them. So there's a lot of stuff in here. I need more space. You really do. Do you store all of it in there? No, I've got a bunch of beige stuff in the attic. Okay. Um, and some stuff that doesn't work in the attic. But there's a lot of stuff in here. It's out of control. But it's all it's all in your house. On your, You don't have a storage unit It's yet. all on my property. Oh, yes. that's nice. I guess. I mean, not everyone thinks it's nice. <laughs> yeah, Mary. Mary's a trooper. You have a great yeah. wife. <laughs> yeah. See, uh, so one reason, okay, so we should just say we had planned to come back in the fall. We each had some stuff. You got married, so congratulations. Hey, thank you. And I had foot surgery. Oh. Uh, Where's my congratulations? Congratulations. <laughs> Yay! So uh, we're a little bit later to this, but the reason I bring that up is um, I got some stuff over the holidays to add to the collection, and some of it was just going to go into the attic. And so I was like, hey, lovely, lovely wife, my life partner, Mary, do you mind hauling <laughs> some stuff in the attic for me? Because I can't use the stairs yet. So, And she did it because she didn't want it in the living room. That was the... Oh, that was the reason I got why. it Not into the because house. because of love or anything. No, it was... I can't walk through my living room. <laughs> Anyways, okay. So uh, on this season, uh, we're tweaking things a little bit. We're going to talk about something old. But through the lens of kind of trends that we see today, so we're working at this backwards a little bit. So the thing that we want to talk about first was, you know, set-top boxes, TV over IP. Every week there's a new streaming service, it seems like. There really and is. those, for the most part, come to us through these little boxes that we plug into our televisions, and smart TVs do a lot of it too, but that's a pretty new thing. And so we wanted to roll back the clock a little bit and talk about one of the early misfires kind of in this market. That's right. Today we're talking about TV. Oh, no, wait, no. TiVo was a success. Today we are talking about the Nexus Q. Do you remember the Nexus Q? I do. And I'm just going to say it off the top. I think this hardware looks awesome. It's so does. I loved it when it came out. I was, you know, re-watching old reviews and reading a bunch of stuff in preparation for this. It's weird, right? It doesn't really stack because, so the Nexus Q, we should say, is basically a sphere, not a cube, a sphere, like a bowling ball. Futuristic. Mm. Yes, with a slice cut out of it so it sits flat. You know, um, the second Blade Runner movie? I do, yeah. Yes. It looks like it could be in that dude's place. It you does. know, with all like the water reflections and stuff. If that was just on a bookshelf, like, yeah, he's got a Nexus Q in the future. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, yeah. This was a media player introduced at Google I.O. in June 2012. You know, not really that long ago. No, just what, nine, you know, eight and a half, nine years ago? 
Yeah, and it was announced at a price of $299, which now for a streaming box is extraordinarily expensive. I mean, <coughs> Apple, <laughs> yeah. oh, excuse me. even even <laughs> the high-end Apple TV is uh, is barely half that price. And so 300 bucks was was a lot of dope, but they promised a lot of stuff. So as Steven mentioned, it was a, it was a round sphere, and not only was it a round sphere, but it had a ring of LEDs around it, and they were kind of at an angle. It was very cool. We should say that it weighed two pounds, by the way. It's yeah. not a, like yeah, it's a big, uh, it's a big heavy thing. And uh, I, where do you put this? Where do you put this in your living room? Yeah, that's true, but. Uh, even though it was heavy and dense, it didn't look that enormous. It's bigger than, you know, the, the streaming boxes we have today. But I mean, have you seen a PlayStation Five? <laughs> so I mean, it's Cannot not see it. <laughs> it's not outrageous. It could fit some places, and like you mentioned, it did look very cool. Uh, for those that are either too lazy to look at show notes or don't remember what this thing looked like and and haven't surmised what it looks like from our amazing verbal description, uh, it looks shockingly similar to the latest kind of orb-like Amazon Echo. Yeah. But that thing the has sphere's buttons back, on the top. baby. The sphere is back. We got the that's... HomePod Mini. Got the <laughs> oh, that's Echoes. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, as is tradition, Google usually starts things that are cool and then gives up before everyone else decides that's also cool. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, the Nexus Q isn't dead. It's very, very popular. All right, so let's talk about uh, I/O. <laughs> what, what, okay. what, what did you have on this thing? Uh, so we had some pretty standard stuff. You had power. You had optical audio out, which Apple ditched on the Apple TV at some point. Yeah. But if you had an optical setup, you could use this. An Ethernet jack to get it on your network if you didn't want to use Wi-Fi. A USB port for, like, development and troubleshooting. Hmm. And then the crown jewel on a two-pound sphere micro HDMI. Ugh. Have you ever used anything other than the full-size HDMI? Only on my Sony camera, because I feed okay. it out to a monitor, and that uses oh, mini micro HD, HD mini micro. HDMI, something small and terrible. Micro mini. Oh, they are both horrible. So there's mini HDMI, which is basically uh, take HDMI and then literally shrink it, but it's got the same general form factor. That it sucks too, but it's at least okay. Mini or micro HDMI is the worst IO thing ever invented. Take micro USB, but then, and how fragile it is and delicate, and then remove everything that's good about it. You know, the little pins that hold micro USB in place. Yeah. yeah. Th those don't exist on micro HDMI. And so you even bump an, a micro HDMI cable and you'll unseat it. And oh, they are just absolutely horrible. I guess in a set top box, it's probably fine, but I can't believe camera manufacturers still use it. I, we use a Canon R5. Um, which sadly doesn't have a full-size or mini HDMI, and it uses a micro HDMI. And we literally have to buy, we had to buy a cage with these cable locks just so that when we bump the cables, it doesn't Gosh. disconnect our <laughs> monitor. Oh, it's it's so bad. They're the worst. It seems like a bad idea on a media player that could literally roll away. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Touche, touche. Okay. Okay. Can, you, can you tell me about the external speaker support? Yeah, so external speaker support. What? That is not anything that I don't that certainly that that modern kind of media players have. But I don't even think any media player other than Nexus Q was bold or maybe dumb enough to try and support that. So there were four <laughs> banana style connectors on the back. They're the kind of 
speaker holes where you put the little flange tip in um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it sticks. So it was for external speakers. And inside of that two pound Nexus Q, and I imagine this is where a lot of the weight comes from. Yeah. There was um, a pair of stereo amplifiers to power each channel at 25 watts, which is actually pretty pretty decent. That does depend on its current output, but that's not too shabby. It's not super powerful, but it's certainly good enough for most bookshelf speakers. Uh, the Sonos Connect amp, by the way, which is very popular, um, I know many of our podcast friends use and, and recommend them. Uh, those support uh, 55 watts per channel, which is quite a bit more than 25, um, but you still could, in theory, run a pair of stereo passive speakers with your Nexus Q. Now, maybe the reason why this never took off was because uh, that's dumb. <laughs> because <laughs> it's it's limited to whatever you choose to output over the Nexus Q, which is likely not going to be your primary output device. And so uh, over time, uh, you'd probably find yourself wanting to gravitate more towards a home theater amplifier or something that could, you know, work in tandem with your TV. But hey, you know, it's it's not bad. And and a lot of people kind of, in theory, stated that it would have been really good for music playback, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but yeah, it had an amplifier inside. Your Apple TV can't do that. Well, I mean, now just everything is over HDMI, right? That's, like that's true. It's just that's true. one cable for everything, and and we'll get to some other companies. But even the original Apple TV had various cable setups you could use before everything sort of consolidated. Yeah, that's true. Oh, we got to talk about the coolest part yeah. of the Nexus Q design is that the entire top half of the sphere twisted as a volume knob. That legitimately is awesome. I want one of these. eBay. The dumb new Amazon Echo still has those clunky buttons on top. Yeah. Well, no Nexus Qs on eBay. What a bummer. <laughs> oh, there is one. <laughs> is there really? 75 bucks. That's that's Ooh, steep. That's, that is steep. Especially considering that basically nothing works. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> ah, right. Sorry. Sorry. I keep getting to the, the punchline over here. <laughs> <laughs> it ran on Android 4, Ice Cream Sandwich. That's right. You know, now it's, you know, tvOS is a a version of iOS, kind of an offshoot. Uh, but this was pretty early on. And I think the fact that it ran Android intrigued some people, kind of wondering what the possibilities would be had this thing taken off. And I, I could see that for the time, right? Like, oh, this has got a full OS on it. It's not just some embedded thing. Yeah. No, and I guess in a similar vein, Apple TV, the original Apple TV was kind of derived from Mac OS or, or so they yeah. said. Yeah, it, it it ran like a weird headless version of Tiger, I think. Yeah. Well, and you, you could even load the kind of a standard desktop Mac OS onto the thing if, if you wanted to. It was a terrible experience, but one could. We'll talk about Apple TV in a minute. Anyway, um, <laughs> similar to other kind of more modern devices even even the modern apple tv runs a kind of a derived it's derived from ios and so yeah the idea that this ran android meant in theory games could be played um unsigned apps could be run in the future which made a lot of kind of um 
should I say piracy focused individuals excited <laughs> because it would give them massive access to those various services. And for the people who have very legitimate Plex servers that are all sure. the ripped Blu-rays, that could also kind of in theory become a, a real advantage. And, and that was before uh, kind of app support was really common on, on these boxes for the few boxes that even existed back in 2012. Um, but kind of the pitch that Google had for this thing was that it was going to be a social media streamer. And the idea was that it wasn't tied to any specific account or user. So various people in your house over Wi-Fi uh, could add things to the Nexus queue for it to play. Um, and so you'd set the thing up and you'd control it via an Android app. The queue didn't have any interface itself. It was just a simple screensaver that showed when music was playing or when the device uh, wasn't being used, which... You know, that sounds a little familiar to another product nowadays. Uh, Chromecast, anyone? <laughs> it does, yeah. yeah. It sounds very familiar to that. So you could play media from a wide range. Oh, no. There wasn't a wide range of content libraries. <laughs> a narrow range. You know, range. people talk about the the HomePod kind of being locked to Apple Music. This thing was basically locked to Google Play Music or YouTube. So this the, the, the ecosystem we live in now with set-top boxes where on a Roku or an Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV or whatever, where you can just go download the HBO app, you know, the NBA app, Disney Plus, whatever. This is before all of that stuff. And and so it really was a Google device to play media from Google services. Yeah, and the thing about this is, is if you were around the early days of, of video streaming, you might recall that you know, prior to the creation of original content, which really didn't happen at scale until probably 2014, 2015, uh, this was still mostly licensed content. And it was generally stuff that uh, maybe so much, you know, movie studios didn't care about being pirated and stuff because mm. <laughs> it was still this uncharted kind of scary new medium. And so the stuff that made it over wasn't generally very high quality. And so if you wanted to watch the latest movies or, or blockbuster films, you'd still have to pay to rent them or, or pay to own them. And so the prospect of it being locked to Google, while disappointing, uh, especially now, was not that outrageous. I mean, Apple did the same thing with the Apple TV at the time. And so, I don't know. What about local media? If I just had a bunch of stuff on my phone, could I just send it to the, my Nexus Q? Yeah, that would sound really, really good, right? Well, n no, you couldn't do that. Uh, not even off of your Android phone, even though this thing ran Android. Um, and as for iPhone, <laughs> what's an iPhone? <laughs> there, was, there was no support to speak of at all. So, so not ideal. And that was just from a content access standpoint. Actual usability it gets even worse. There was uh, reports of the video streams when you sent the content over starting really slowly because similar to Chromecast, you would basically tell the device, hey, go get this thing. And then the queue itself would go out to the internet to find the file and then play it back, be that a YouTube video or Google Play Music or, or video type content. But yeah, uh, the experience was not great and the content selection was really limited. So as you can expect, initial reviews were really positive, right? David Pogue in his headline in the New York Times called it baffling. <laughs> it's not what you want to see in the New York Times. No, no. He wrote this. Google must have bigger plans for this thing. It's wildly overbuilt for its incredibly limited functions and far too expensive. For now, I can only think of one class of customer who should consider buying the black Nexus Q-Sphere. 
people whose living rooms are dominated by bowling ball collections. Yeah, he's he's not wrong though, and and I don't want to sound like the Apple user here because I love a lot of the products that Google makes, but this is a classic Google product in my opinion, where you have. It seems like the hardware and the software teams have very little to no communication with each other. They have this mm-hmm. incredible piece of hardware with a built-in amplifier and optical out audio and all of this really high-tech, fancy stuff. It actually had a really respectable processor for the time as well. And then it's got this really stripped-down, bare-bone versions of Android that doesn't even have a control. You can only send content to it from your phone. And the content that you can send is extremely limited and the user interface is non-existent and it just, it's half-baked and and it's too bad because I think it did have a lot of potential, but, you know, it didn't really pan out and and that ended up being the problem. It it never actually went on sale. Google I.O. 2012 attendees got them for free. That's probably where that one from eBay came from. Yeah, actually, most certainly. Mm Mm-hmm. And they had... um, Feedback, I guess, from those people. And so Google announced in July of 2012 that they were going to delay it and collect additional feedback. And this is this is what they they said. So they said the industrial design and hardware were met with great enthusiasm. We also heard initial feedback from users that they want Nexus Q to do even more than it does today. <laughs> it can play a YouTube video or it can stream from Google Play Music. Mm-hmm. In response, we've decided to postpone the consumer launch of Nexus Q while making it even better. It's kind of weird because that was the feedback they had gotten from Google I.O. attendees, which are mostly developers, and they were presumably given developer hardware. The problem is, for months now, Google had been accepting pre-orders from excited Google fans who were really big on Android and thought this was going to be the future. Well, rather than probably do the smart thing and just cancel, uh, they ended up kind of canceling and delaying the launch. They did the classic Google thing where like, it seems dead, but they don't really say it's dead. And all these people had pre-ordered. So the good thing is, is they did refund everyone who had pre-ordered the Nexus Q. What's odd is that they actually sent them free developer hardware. And so they basically, they probably had a warehouse of these developer kits laying around and said, well, you were dumb enough to give us your money for this thing. Here's your money back. And here's a Nexus Q. And it just never really went on sale. They never fixed the issues. And by January 2013, Google kind of just quietly scrubbed it from existence. Stop. Just stop talking about it. 2013 was the beginning of the end of the the idea mm-hmm. of the Nexus Q. So even if the hardware and software never really made it out to consumers, support and Google Play, things uh, started falling apart basically that year. They introduced the Chromecast in 2013, which we're going to talk about in a second. The app to control it and Google Music, all that basically stopped working in 2015. And it, the zombie was officially killed a year later in 2016 by Google. But at this point, <laughs> it couldn't do anything. So they're like, okay, support's officially over. Yeah, that's my favorite thing where they like just stop talking about it in 2013 and then over the years, they're like, okay, fine. It's we're it's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what do you do? And that was the end of media players, right? So what oh, you do okay. next is you okay. take the good <laughs> ideas out of it and you make a new product, which is what Google did. So in 2013, the original $35 Chromecast made it out the door and it worked basically like the queue. So your phone would tell the Chromecast what to play and the Chromecast would go fetch it off the internet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the idea is, is still really good, right? It means that your yeah. 
device isn't tied up sending video or audio to the TV. Like something like AirPlay doesn't really do that. AirPlay 2 kind of does it, but it's weird. Um, This was a good idea. And they took really the heart of the Nexus Q and put it into a product that made a lot more sense. Yeah. And for 35 bucks, it was kind of a no brainer. That's $264 less than the (laughs) Nexus Q. And, uh, you know, one of the, the cool tricks that the, the the Chromecast had that I actually didn't know was that you could send any browser tab out of Chrome to your TV mm-hmm. and almost any media that was on that page would just play on the Chromecast, which was really cool. QuickTime, surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, if you've ever worked with QuickTime on a non-Apple device, was pretty buggy and didn't work that well. But other than that, it worked out great. And the thing about the Chromecast is even though initially it was limited to YouTube, Netflix, and Google's kind of play media apps, it was $35. And so for a lot of people who hadn't had an internet-connected TV and were still relying on an old cable box or wanted to be able to display content on their television, this was an amazing option at a very, very, very low price. And Google sold a ton of them. And so what you quickly saw was not only many Android apps officially integrating Chromecast support, but many iOS apps integrating Chromecast support as well, which further made it kind of an obvious go-to. Mm-hmm. I think there was some tension between Apple and Google over that at some point, but there's always tension in these things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I think the ability to send a Chrome tab made it popular in, in business. You know, you could have it in yeah. a meeting room and just like send a spreadsheet up to the projector or whatever, up to that's the TV. Right. And now that's available in AirPlay and all these other things. But yeah, it was super smart. And for $35, you could buy eight and a half Nexus Qs. So. Way more affordable. (laughs) And Google has just like stayed on the Chromecast train. And so two years later, they had an updated design. This is the one I think most people remember from the early days, like the disc that hung off a short HDMI cable, kind of floppy behind your TV. So if your TV was up against a wall, you could tuck this back there more easily than a hard HDMI dongle, which may get in the way. Yeah, the other good thing was those hard HDMI dongles were wide. And so sometimes it would block the kind of nearby HDMI ports as well. Um, they added 802.11ac, 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, um, fast play, which meant the Chromecast would preload content that Big Brother, I mean, Google thought you would want next. You know, if you're watching a bunch of Snazzy Labs videos, it's just going to load up the next one. Yeah, or be like, this guy's not that great. Here's another YouTuber. <laughs> Uh, well, what do you do? All roads end at MKBHD is what we're saying. Yeah. Well, and Google, as a really uh, unified visionary company, saw that Chromecast was the answer, and they didn't try other things, and it was just that was the end of the story. Well, uh, not quite. So uh, we got to talk about another side project that they began. Actually, before the launch of... Uh, either of these devices before the Nexus Q and the Chromecast called Google TV. It launched clear back in 2010 and it eventually turned into Android TV, which was mostly what the Nexus Q kind of operated on, but it was a lot starker in contrast to something like the Chromecast because unlike the Chromecast, which was designed to be controlled by your mobile device, Android TV had a user interface that was navigable by a remote control. Uh, And it was much more similar to traditional kind of smart TV software and, and more similar to what we would mostly see today. Here's the thing. It gets confusing because they have these two products that are very, very different. 
Android TV and Chromecast coexisting in their system. And so one might wonder, well, what what does Google believe is the future of the TV? Well, according to the uh, VP of product management, uh, Mario Quiroz at the time said that it was designed to be complementary and that both had a place in the market, but that Google ultimately envisioned people starting content conception on their smartphones and not on the TV itself, aka we see Chromecast as the future. And it will actually be interesting because a little bit later, maybe Google's position on this has changed slightly yet again. So that's Google. That's the Nexus Q. That's Chromecast and Android TV. But there are a number of competitors to this product now and even back then. So should we talk about them? Yeah. So we mentioned the first Apple TV a little bit earlier, which um, it had the unfortunate, the unfortunate uh, time in life to be announced uh, around. I think even in the same keynote as the first iPhone, but no one remembers it that it's in there. Um, <laughs> like the Nexus Q, Apple had a very clear idea of what it wanted to be, and that idea has changed over time. So initially, it was like a hard, it was hard drive based media player that synced content from your iTunes library. So. You kind of think about it as an iPod for your TV. Yeah. So you just, hey, I want to watch this season of The Office. Or I want to watch this movie. I purchased it all from iTunes. Sync it over to the Apple TV, which over Wi-Fi, you know, in 2007, 2008, could take a little while in most, you know, homes. From your Mac, no less. It wasn't until later that you could directly download from their store, right? Yeah. So yeah, they, with this initial hardware, they redesigned it, and and then they had subsequent hardware. And, you know, this first one, it was okay. Like, I I own one now. I didn't have one then. But I know people who did. And I think people who got it were really into it. But it definitely didn't really get popular until, like you said, Apple made it where I can buy or rent content directly on the box. And I'm not dealing with, you know, the family iMac in the living room trying to, like, sync something so my wife and I can watch it on our bedroom TV. Like, that just broke down for a lot of people. Yeah, it. so my parents actually owned one, and I vividly remember them getting it clear back in 2007. And at the time, I thought it was awesome because it was like a Mac for your TV. But even my dad, as an avid Apple user, I remember him never really kind of using the Apple TV because of, A, how difficult it was to kind of sync content to the device, and then B... It really only worked well if your lifestyle was purchasing and consuming content from Apple. Yeah. Anyone who remembers kind of iTunes remembers that while music management was excellent, video management was not very good. It struggled with different codecs and depending on where you purchased or downloaded video content from, it became kind of tricky to manage that all from within your iTunes library. I remember even struggling telling iTunes that this was a TV show and not a movie because it didn't recognize it as a, you know, redefining in the metadata what that was. It's just the whole thing. And so I think for people that had a very carefully curated library of content, it was a no-brainer and awesome. But if you were a little more lax and kind of had, you know, a bunch of disorganized stuff, if you were an iPod user that had your most popular artist with the most songs called Untitled Artist, aka mm-hmm. all your songs were disorganized. <laughs> the Apple TV didn't really work out either. But you also got to remember this is 2007. Uh, YouTube and the concept of video streaming existed, 
but it was mostly for, you know, CAD videos and stuff. It wasn't for hard-hitting AAA content. Uh, certainly not Snazzy Labs videos. Those didn't begin until 2008. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and also, you know, Flash versus H.264, there were codec issues that had yet to be resolved. Yeah. Um, Netflix streaming didn't even launch until late 2007 and didn't get worthwhile content for a few years after that. And so they were just early to the market. They didn't really know what it was going to be yet. But by 2010, they had a better idea. Yeah. So that's when they replaced that big, hot running Intel hard drive based Apple TV with the smaller, you know, black puck that we're used to now. And that's when they really made the shift to you could stream, rent it, or purchase media from iTunes, YouTube, and other places. And they also launched AirPlay. So you could send content originally just from iOS devices, but eventually from the Mac to your Apple TV. You could eventually mirror your whole screen uh, to your television, which was really nice. Again, talking about boardrooms and classrooms and stuff, that's a nice feature. By 2012, they had a 1080p box that could do all this stuff and was just $99. So the year the Nexus Q was an, was announced, like by that point, Apple was really up and running with their Apple TV. And for just a hundred bucks, you could get something mm-hmm. that could do a whole lot more than the Nexus Q ever could. And with AirPlay, stuff that it didn't support directly, you could get it onto your Apple TV. And so they just looking at Google and Apple in this time frame, I think Apple was way ahead. I think so too. And much more akin to what we see now. And look, Apple and Google weren't the only ones either. Perhaps the most prominent uh, company in this kind of modern age of streaming is Roku. And by March 2013, so not far after, third generation Roku hardware was shipping. So in 2012, they were already on second gen. Yeah, they were rocking and rolling by this point. They really were. Uh, They were founded clear back in 2002 by Anthony Wu, who had founded the TiVo competitor Replay TV. And while working at Netflix in 2007, he'd worked on a set-top box streamer for Netflix that would have been an early example of first-party hardware. Uh, But before launching it, Netflix decided that having their own media player on the market would hurt its agreements with third-party partners. And so Netflix spun the company off and Roku launched its hardware in 2008. Very, very early. When it launched, it supported Netflix's then new streaming service at 720p. But a year later, uh, Roku launched upgraded hardware uh, and the channel store, which is still used in Roku devices today, where users could actually download applications for other content sources. Again, really early on, Mm -hmm. similar in fashion to what Apple had envisioned for the Apple TV. Yeah, I remember this time frame when it it looked like, because there were rumors that Netflix was going to do its own box, like you buy the Netflix box and it it just takes up an HDMI port or whatever on your TV. And then uh, I think they saw the light. I think they made the right decision by not doing that, by instead saying, we're just going to be on everything. I mean, you can get a microwave that runs Netflix now, right? It is... It is if you have a a TV platform that doesn't run Netflix, you're dead on arrival at this point. And so Netflix, I think, made the right call here, and we got Roku out of it, which just like Apple and just like Google with the Chromecast and and other products, they just kept their foot on the gas. I mean, Roku has hardware revisions almost every year, and their yeah. HDR, 4K, little streaming sticks, so you don't need the full size thing. And they have made the jump where basically the Roku software actually like is the OS on 
uh, TVs. Mo- I think most notably by TCL, but they're in a bunch of other TVs as well. Yep. Where you just buy a Roku TV. There's not a box anymore. All of those brains are in the television set. Something that some people wanted Apple to do in past years. Apple hasn't ever done it. But Roku saw an opportunity there to become kind of like the windows of smart TV. So you can go buy a bunch of different TVs at Costco or Best Buy or whatever that are powered by Roku internally. And that's that sets them apart from these uh, these other companies. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about how that strategy's panned out later because Roku, I think, was the earliest example of the software being the product and not so much the actual streaming hardware itself. Yeah. Um, and it, they were they were smart. They figured it out. Oh, and then uh, there's Amazon. Remember those guys? Yeah, little little startup company. Yeah, that's right. So they had the Fire TV. Amazon had experienced success with first-party hardware for quite a while. They had the Kindle lineup. Obviously, now they have the uh, kind of Echo-style devices. But the Amazon Fire TV was was a decent idea because, well, they too sold digital content like Apple and Google and many others uh, for many, many, many years under the Amazon Instant Video brand. So they had Amazon Video, which launched clear back in the early 2000s. And then once they pivoted to streaming, Amazon Instant Video became the name. And uh, they were, along with Netflix, kind of one of the first to have original content, original programming. Now, their original content was very low budget uh, relative to Netflix's, you know, House of Cards and, and other series like that. But by 2013, they had a few successes. Betas and Alpha House were both uh, fairly well-liked, and they had intentions to enter the streaming market much more heavily by 2014, allocating $1.3 billion to their original programming budget, which nowadays is peanuts. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone's doing more than that, but that still, th- that's a big commitment to video. And so it only seemed reasonable that they would have a streaming box of their own. And uh, well, with the launch of Amazon Video, went through so many. It was called Amazon Video and then Amazon Instant Video. And then it was rebranded back to Amazon Video in 2014. And now it's called Prime Video. (sighs) Anyway, their video service (laughs) in 2014 was rebranded. And at the same time, a $99 streaming box was announced. And uh, well, tell us about it. Was it special? Now, I've not used uh, a Fire TV ever, but in my mind and in reading, it's like Roku level type hardware. Yeah, it's it's worse in my opinion, but very similar kind of yeah. vein. Yeah. Now it's basically powered by the Echo voice assistant. You know, a- Amazon's been able to leverage other things into it. And like Roku, they have multiple devices. They did have a real odd focus, especially for the time when they launched it, on gaming and apps. That's something yeah. we saw Apple do in 2015, where Tim Cook got on stage and said, the future of TV is apps, and that just hasn't really panned out. <laughs> but I think Amazon, like Apple, have learned that it's much more about the, quote, channels, the apps that are just for streaming. And they've backed off some of the gaming stuff until recently when they announced a, a Stadia competitor. I don't even know. What is Amazon's called? Luna? Is that? Uh, that's right. That's right. their game streaming service. So yep. you can get to it through their their boxes now, the high-end ones at least, but... Yeah, like some other companies, Amazon's kind of wandered around with this, but a very popular platform, and they've iterated on it just like the others, you know, higher resolution, better remote control, better software, and they sell very well now. 
Yeah, they really do. And I think one of the reasons they caught on early is because they had the weight of Amazon behind them. They were a big company, unlike Roku. And while Roku has transitioned to mostly being a software company, originally their bread and butter was hardware. And Amazon didn't care so much about that. And they've continually proven over the last couple decades that they're willing to even be a loss leader if it means getting their devices into your homes. And so um, the uh, I think the biggest f- kind of selling point of the uh, Fire TV devices have continually been the cost. I mean, over time, they've gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper while adding more and more features. And they're commonly cited as the best selling, probably just because they're so inexpensive relative to the competition. Yeah. And frankly, while they don't offer the best user interface, I've found that save for a few quibbles here and there with with, uh, Google, they've been perhaps tied with Roku in the sense that they are, you're the most likely to get new streaming service apps added the most quickly. And, and that may be just because of market dominance, but it, you know, yeah, it, it's a pretty safe box where you can get it and you can expect pretty much everything to work. So that brings us to today. And you have a hot take about this market now. Oh yes. Well, it's not, it's hot. just the, just, it, just a take. it's not a hot take. It's probably just, it's probably just the truth. Uh, the market has cooled down significantly now that it's more mature. We still see new hardware coming out, and there is hardware you know, released to support HDR and, and 4K, and I'm sure that there will be 8K content coming soon. But you know, now that we know what these boxes are and what they're supposed to do, there's less of a rush to kind of innovate the wheel in the hardware department, and really the focus has turned to software. And, and look, it's because, I mean, you can still buy devices from all these people, Apple, Roku, Amazon, and Google, and they all support the same core services. So Netflix is supported on all of them, as is YouTube and HBO Max and Disney Plus. The list goes on. And so it's, you know, we've gone beyond the hardware and the money is in the content. And every company wants you as a subscriber to be their customer, even if you don't opt for their hardware. So Apple is a, is a really good example of a company that historically in the past has wanted their software experiences to be locked to their hardware. But Apple has pushed very hard for Apple TV Plus to be available on other streaming boxes and television sets because they want you to pay for their content more than they want you to buy their dumb Apple TV box. Yeah, the Apple TV Plus streaming service is lots and lots of places now. And they're trying to i think outgrow the the install base of the the Apple TV hardware and in in comparison with what else is on the market the Apple TV 4K is a joke it's 180 bucks it's not compelling yeah uh, you can get things from Roku and Amazon at a at a fraction of the price that have all the same features and all the same content to your point a second ago mm-hmm. and a better remote and a better voice assistant and I just don't know. I just don't know what they're doing. <laughs> How did that remote ever get approved? It's so bad. It's so bad. And I know every time I complain about it, there are people that are like staunch defenders of the remote saying, oh, you just don't know how to use it. Maybe that's true, but I don't know that I've ever successfully typed out anything on the keyboard without skipping like four keys at a time. Even when you're selecting content, it's oh, it's it's bad. It's bad. And then when you have to charge the remote once a year, you're like, oh, I got to find a lightning cable. I don't have those anymore. 
I only use those to charge my AirPods Max. Okay, I'm getting distracted. All right, so okay, Apple TV. Yeah, it exists. Uh, one of the big pitches to Apple TV uh, was AirPlay 2. It was a big pull for iOS and macOS users that wanted to easily throw content up on screen similar to Chromecast, but even beyond that too, because you could do screen mirroring and, and cool stuff like that. Uh, but many TV makers, including the LG TVs I own, uh, ship with AirPlay 2 support built in. And so that's even further rendered the Apple TV box kind of unnecessary. It, really, the only major streaming platform where I didn't find Apple TV Plus support was on Android TV. Android TV isn't, well, uh, it hasn't necessarily uh, flourished, mm-hmm. let's say. So yeah, Apple exists and th- they make a decent product, but they're no longer the market leader. And I don't know that they ever were, probably just because of cost. But uh yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Android TV. Yeah, I mean, you can see in Android TV that Google had this idea of like we're just going to be the OS for the television. We talked about Roku a second ago, how they've done that. I think Google wanted part of that pie too. Yeah, at least here in North America, Sony's the only major manufacturer selling Android TV sets, and now you can do Philips and Skyworth and other things regionally, but not worldwide. Google just has had a hard time getting this program uh, up off the ground. And it's it's confusing, too, because, like, okay, yeah, it would be great if, like, your TV just turned on and you're in the, you're, like, quote, in the OS that you want to be in. Like, for us, we don't have cable. Yeah. Our Apple TV is television in our house. And, of course, that makes even more sense if it's just in the television, maybe. But they just haven't gotten they haven't gotten it going yeah it's uh it's it's too bad and you know i think they were kind of right about starting content from your phone becoming more popular uh, and 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 all that stuff they were just wrong about their system being the primary way people would consume that content and so android tv really was lackluster in the sense that it didn't kind of flourish as as a decent competitor to Roku and to Apple TV, frankly, until much later on. And at that point, it was too late. I mean, they had the Palm WebOS problem. Furthermore, it has the classic Google complexities that make it, you know, it makes you question, what even is is it? What is life? Uh, Android TV, you know how that was originally called Google TV we mentioned earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, now Android TV is called Google TV again. Perfect. It's not, but it probably will be. Google TV is back, and it's just a reskinned Android TV. What are you doing? Oh, wow, what? okay. So Android TV was kind of like the apps-focused Apple TV, and we've seen tvOS kind of evolve over the last few years to really being more focused on content. Um, Android TV isn't. It's still like, hey, you can play games and do all these cool, cute little things. Look at the weather on your TV. And Google TV is a more mature approach of like, look, when people turn the TV on, they want the niceties that come with having a smart connected TV, but ultimately they want content. And so the new 2020 Chromecast Ultra actually ships with a remote and it has a UI that is Google TV that's based on Android TV, but is more of an Apple TV, Roku, kind of uh, other desktop streaming box approach. And and frankly, it, reviews have been quite good. It, it looks fantastic. It, it apparently is very responsive. It has the excellent Google Assistant built in, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just a little odd. And it's only reasonable to assume that over time, Google TV will become the de facto video experience from Google, uh, and it will replace Android TV entirely. But as of yet, that has not happened. So there's Chromecast, there's Google TV, 
and there's Android TV, and they're all different, but they're all kind of the same. It's Google. <laughs> it's a very googly situation over there in TV land. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Roku, they've got a more uh, clearly defined vision, right? So, um, yeah, I think that I think they do. I mean, their business model <laughs> is different because they sell both the set-top boxes and they have a range of them and they sell or they have partnerships with OEMs to like buy a Roku TV. So they're more diversified than the others. They're also yeah. the only company in this list that isn't a giant tech company, right? Apple, Google, and Amazon right. TV is one tiny part of their business. Roku, this is their business. So I think it's smart for them to diversify the way that they have and they also, they don't produce original content either. Yeah. They're willing to basically play ball with people who want to play ball. And I think because of that, Netflix and others are more willing to pay to be on the Roku because, yeah. you know, well, you, you're not, you don't have content competing with us. And as these other companies move into content more and more, that's that could be an issue. So like Netflix pays Roku a dollar for every device with a Netflix button on the remote. Mm. So if you ever see one of those, that's you just know some money changed hands. And that's how they they're yeah, yeah. how they're making their money is these partnerships. Yeah. Uh, Disney Plus has paid millions of dollars to have their movies and shows advertised on the Roku home screen. And so they've they've transcended beyond being a hardware business. They're they're literally an, an ad business. I mean that, that is what they do. Um, they have some questionable, although a lot of TV and set-top box makers do the same, um, they have some questionable kind of uh, ethics when it comes to selling user data on uh, how long they watch shows and what shows they watch and their completion rate and all that stuff. Um, but they've been doing quite well. Having gone public in 2017 with an IPO of $26 per share, Roku has swelled to over $340 per share at the time of recording, and it doesn't seem that there's really any indication that a slowdown is coming soon. So good for Roku, I guess. Uh, they're, they're doing okay. And they are, by market share, far and above the most popular set-top box software operating system in the United States. It's, it's not even close. Roku has like 35%. And then the next closest um, is Amazon Fire TV. And I think they have 12 or 13%. So it, Roku is just dominant. I mean, it's truly difficult to state how much market power they have. Yeah, you would think that a company like that's like Roku, this is what they do, that they would have been crushed at this point, but they have... Uh, really carved out a, a large part of the market for themselves. And I think it's good. I think it's good to have more competition in this area because this whole market has slid into, to a degree, whatever operating system your phone has on it, that's what your TV is going to have on it. That's what your smart speaker... You know, like if you're in the Apple ecosystem, yeah, you're going to have Siri everywhere. If you're got an Android phone, you may be more likely to have Echoes or... Google slash Android TV. You know what I mean? Like they're, they, the market has been carved up and Roku has really planted a flag in the ground for themselves. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although I must say, um, I have, um, you know, I have a, a TV that has Google Assistant built in. And because I vastly prefer Google Assistant anyways, it, it doesn't bother me that Siri is not controllable. I, I should say my TV isn't controllable via Siri, just because I find the experience on the TV itself to be far better than I would with an yeah. Apple TV. But I do know that I'm likely in the minority of, of pro Apple users that don't use an Apple TV and really have no intentions yeah. to. 
Oh, and then there's Amazon. They're still around, right? Yeah, they're kicking. They're boxes. They've got yeah. Fire TV stuff just coming out all over the place. You can get one for 29 bucks. <laughs> Remember when I said it was a fraction of the cost of Apple's? I really meant that. Yeah, that's even that's even less than an, an original Chromecast. Yeah, yeah the the that entry level Fire TV is like Echo Dot. Sometimes you just order some socks from Amazon. They've just thrown four of them in the box for you. <laughs> That's They're right. everywhere. It really is. I mean, they have those sales that go on, and the price of these devices probably sink to Amazon's cost. And like others, they care about content subscriptions more than the hardware itself. So they're just, yep. you can get these things for nothing. So where do we go from here? I mean, if this market feels, like we've said, pretty mature. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't know. I think it, this idea and perception that um, kind of the content is king will continue to play out as true. I think that the the concept of a set-top box will probably, I don't know that it'll die out. They'll always exist, but they've certainly become less of a focus. We talked about how Roku is on the TCL TVs, which sell like crazy. LG has their own WebOS software operating system on on their televisions, and it's it's fantastic. It's it's what I use for everything, and I, I wouldn't even think about getting a Roku or any other device. They're, they're great. The problem is that TV makers, well, they sell you hardware, <laughs> and so they're the ones that are actually probably more likely to block older models from getting new streaming services or updates, but um, I guess thanks to HDMI streaming sticks, that's not largely a problem because we can, you know, once your TV software goes bad, you can just upgrade the stick itself. The thing about content is, in my opinion, it's messy again, right? We kind of, this all caught on because of the concept of cord cutting. We were sick of paying, you know, $150 a month for 400 channels when in reality, we only watched four or five of them. And I think that to an extent, because of the fact that so many of these streaming services have really, really good original series, you're you kind of pushed into subscribing to all of them. And I don't know how tenable that is long term. But I agree. I mean, I look at what I pay streaming each month and I could have a I could have cable. Now I would have cable yeah. on and then also Disney Plus and then also these other things. But true, true. some of that stuff is bundled through the uh, the death of net neutrality, you know, AT&T can just give you HBO Max for free if you pay for fast enough phone internet. So right. you got to you got to juggle all that. And yeah, it's it's definitely complicated and especially with live TV and sports in particular, it gets it gets tricky. Yeah. On one hand, the hardware and software is better than ever, but on on the other hand, it's just as frustrating as it ever was. It, it really is. And I think uh, at least the benefit of, uh, it sucks that we have to pay a bajillion dollars for stuff now, like we used to a few years ago when for a while you were getting an incredible, I mean, I remember the early days of Netflix when it was really the only good streaming service. Netflix had everything and it was like, what, $8 a month or something ridiculous like that. Um, now things have obviously shifted and I think people are going to get tired of it. There has been an increase, um, year over year in online piracy since 2018. So this is now the second concurrent year. I, I suppose that's going to continue to increase next year after a few years of decline, because kind of the two main reasons that people believe piracy exists is ease of access and cost. So people will steal stuff when stealing it is easier than buying it. 
that's not really true anymore. I mean, streaming is fantastically simple and really, really easy. And it's one of the reasons the piracy went down because it was so much more convenient to just pay 10 bucks a month and stream anything you wanted than trying to go to some website and acquire it illicitly. But then the second reason is cost. With all of these services existing, with everyone trying to get a slice of the pie, people are getting more irritated and they find themselves uh, more likely to turn to piracy than paying for all of these subscriptions like they used to 10 years ago before Netflix kind of changed everything. But the thing that I think is uh, hmm, more interesting is the actual pricing models of some of these services. We Netflix kind of started the idea that you know you can binge a season. It all comes out at once. But we've now seen Disney with The Mandalorian and Apple with almost every Apple TV Plus series waiting like a traditional television show week after week to publish an episode, probably in an attempt to get you to stay subscribed during the months of downtime where there would otherwise be no reason to subscribe to the service if there's only one show you care about that you can binge in a week, you know? Totally agree. Whew. So that's streaming services. Wild. All born out of a weird sphere that no one could buy. Yeah. Hey, one last thing. Do you ever think that mobile-first content consumption will really ever catch on? Because Chromecast, you know, it exists, and most TVs support Chromecast. And But it's my perception that since this TV software has gotten really good lately from everyone else, that we're going back to kind of having a TV remote where we sit down at the TV and we go, okay, I'm going to watch a thing. What is that going to be rather than finding it on the phone and just tossing it over to the TV? I agree with you. I think in the living room, people are just so used to having a remote or two remotes, you know, on the, on the table or on the end of the couch. And I know at least like looking at my usage and the usage, like in my house, that's how we all use the Apple TV. It's very rare. We airplay something. Yeah. And I, I, I think I think that's definitely the norm. Well, we did it. There you have it. We've solved the streaming problem. It's all fixed. If you want to learn more <laughs> about the Nexus Q and these other products we spoke about, head on over to our website, relay.fm slash flashback slash 11. I forgot how hard that was to say. Slash yeah. flashback slash 11. It's tricky. You're rusty. You better You better step it up. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode 12. So we're not, season two's here. Season two is here. If you want to find us online, it's pretty easy to do so. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and I host a bunch of other shows here on Relay FM. Quinn, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at SnazzyQ. You should follow me if you don't. I, uh, I just realized I'm about ready to roll over 100K. Ooh. Uh, that many people are willing to listen to my absolute nonsense that I tweet. And thank you for that. Um, if you want more serious, more uh, interesting content, you can follow me on YouTube at youtube.com slash snazzy. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how you find me. I'm pretty easy. All right. Well, until our next episode, say goodbye. See you later. Bye, y'all.